The scripture for today is from Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right. Hey, everybody. Um, glad to be with you this morning. We're spending with you. We are continuing our series through uh, all of Scripture and using the Jesus storybook as a guide for which passages we're focusing on and the themes of what we're talking about. And so we've reached the end of Genesis this morning. Um, and uh, before we dive into the, the Joseph story, um, one of my favorite plays is called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. Has anyone ever read, seen this play or read this play? Man, you should do it. This is, this is an amazing play. Uh, it tells the story of two side characters of Shakespeare's Hamlet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, these two side camera characters were uh, sent by the king to investigate Hamlet and plot against him to kill him. Uh, and what Hamlet does in the story is he, that they are delivering a letter saying that Hamlet should be killed, a letter from the king. And Hamlet switches the letter out with his own letter that says Rosencrantz and Guildenstern should be killed. And they deliver that letter instead, and then they both get killed at the end of Hamlet as a result. And so since Shakespeare wrote this play, everyone sees these two characters as just two side characters that are fated to die um, in this story. Uh, but uh, this, this play written in the 60s, I think, 1960s, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, flips it around and has them be the protagonists of their own story. And in this story, they um, begin to, to become aware of their own fate and begin to wrestle with it in uh, funny ways and in tragic ways. Um, and so one particularly funny scene is at the beginning of the story, uh, they're, they're betting on flipping coins and of our lives. And by the end, as they wrestle against this fate, they conclude the wheels have been set in motion and they have, and, and it actually does end with them kind of giving up and just dying. And then the fated end with them being announced, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's a funny play. It's a sad play, um, but it's famous and it struck a chord with people um, I think because, in a way, we're all condemned to the same fate. Uh, we all will die. The wheels have been set in motion for your life to which you are condemned. And the announcement will happen for each one of us. And to make matters worse than this, the Bible claims that not Shakespeare, but actually God is the author of your life. Uh, Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern flipping coins— um, how it always lands, the Bible says, is from God. And the issue that we might have with this is that how life ends up for us, how our lots fall in our lives, are often hard. Uh, they're often full of evil in ourselves and in others. And like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're all ending in the same place with us dying. 
And so it can be hard for us in the midst of this fallen world to, to understand what God is doing at his writing table up there. How is this the plan you wrote for me, God? Have you ever wondered that question when your life has seemed to turn out in a way that you didn't expect for it to? Maybe a marriage that you're in is far from what you're, you expected. Uh, it's full of fights and pain, and you're wondering, God, how is this the man or woman that you had for me? Maybe it's a loss of a loved one too early that left a gaping hole in your life. How am I supposed to move forward? We had plans. How is this the lot you chose for me, God? Maybe a past abuse that's traumatized you or a period of singleness in your life that's gone on way longer than you had hoped. A job you feel stuck in. A child who is so tough right now. Parents who are just making your life miserable. How is this the lot you chose for me, God? How is this the plan you wrote for my life? The book of Genesis is actually about this very question. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's usually known as the introduction uh, to creation and to mankind. Um, but it's also the introduction to evil in the world. Um, we, we saw in Genesis 3 how evil was introduced along with sin and death. And then it grows and spreads to lying, murder, rape, adultery, incest, polygamy, an endless list of horrible things. This is the question that Joseph, uh, the, the main character of our story today, would have wondered numerous times in his life. Uh, his lot was not great. Um, and we're going to ask the text with him this morning, who planned the evil events in Genesis and in our lives? And I want to suggest that we find three mysterious answers in this story. First one is, number one, humans plan evil. Number two, there's a hidden presence in the midst of that evil. And number three, the plan of God prevails. So humans plan evil, there's a hidden presence in the midst of the evil, and the plan of God prevails. Let's pray. Father, um, as we come to you this morning, uh, many of us uh, feel today, this morning, that our lots in life have been hard. Uh, this season for many of us is really hard. Um, and for many of us, the question is on our hearts, uh, Lord, what, what are you doing in all this? Um, how is this a plan that you made? Um, Lord, would you speak to us this morning in the midst of that, the same way you spoke through Joseph, to Joseph, to his brothers? Uh, Lord, would you help us see um, what you're... So the first, first point is that, that we see is humans plan evil. Look with me at the beginning of the story, chapter 37, 2 through 4 here. If you have your Bibles with you, turn there. So... Uh, this is telling the story beginning of, uh, of Joseph, the son of, of uh, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, who we talked about, um, Andy talked about last week. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all their brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So if you remember Andy's sermon last week, Jacob or Israel, he liked Rachel more than Leah, these two sisters. Uh, but due to some cunning from Leah, Jacob ends up having kids with Rachel and with Leah. And not just with them two, he also ends up having kids with both of their servants because there's a competition among them to have more kids. And these decisions, as you, as you would imagine, would create some pretty messed up family dynamics for the kids of that, of, of that family. And it turns out, not surprisingly, Jacob loves 
the son of Rachel, a lot more than the sons of Leah or the two servants. The son of, of Rachel is Joseph. Uh, Leah, and so we, we, we find out from this that all these brothers now hate Joseph. Also, as you would expect, uh, it says three times in chapter 37 that he was hated. And so Leah was hated, as we saw in Andy's sermon, and now her sons hate back um, as a result of that. And Joseph was not the best sibling either. It says that he, uh, he gave a bad report of his brothers to his father. And this is not Joseph just telling on his brothers bad things they're already doing. This is Joseph making up stories, fabricating stories to make them seem worse in his father's eyes. Um, and so uh, you might imagine why he, he would be hated given all that. Um, and to add to that, then he has these two dreams um, where everyone in his family is bowing down to him. And he tells his brothers they really don't like that. And he also tells his parents, and they also don't like that. His dad's like, what, so me and your mom are going to bow to you? What are you talking about? And so his brothers make a plan to kill Joseph, to throw him in a pit. The older brother intercedes, and then they come up with some sort of compromise where he's sold into slavery. And then they take his coat of many colors that dad had given him as a sign of his, his favoritism. And uh, they, they put blood on it and bring it back to, to, to Jacob and say he's dead. And it says that Jacob was crushed. He refused to be comforted by anyone. And so he says, I'll go to the grave now with my son because I'll be mourning so much. So it's a rough start to the life of Joseph, who's now in slavery. To mention a rough start to his family, his brother's lives, uh, to Jacob's life. And so Joseph's hardship doesn't even end there, though. He gets, he gets sold into slavery at uh, Potiphar's house. Uh, Joseph's a good-looking guy, so Potiphar's wife approaches him to sleep with him, maybe. Um, Joseph uh, says no, which makes her angry. And as he runs away, she grabs his robe and rips it off of him and then yells out to all the men in the house saying, uh, Joseph tried to sleep with me. And they believe her. Uh, and so Joseph gets locked up in prison in a terrible Egyptian prison. And he's foiled by two schemes uh, by which people uh, lied about him and took away his clothes in the process. And so at this point in the story, if we ask the question, uh, what or who plans the evil events of Joseph's life? Who planned those? The first thing we see clearly in the story of Joseph is that humans are making plans of evil towards one another, and that evil is generally coming to pass. Joseph tarnishes his brother's reputation with lies, and their dad doesn't really like him. Uh, Joseph's brothers want to sell him into slavery, and he goes into slavery. Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph, uh, and then lies about him in the process, and he gets sent to prison. These purposes are coming true. No one's stopping them, and they're affecting each other's lives neg- negatively, and you're wondering, where is God in this? Why is he not mentioned? Humans purpose evil, and that, from what we can see, determines the events of the story. We are responsible. This is the, consistent with the rest of Genesis 2. So a few weeks ago, I preached on Genesis 3, where sin and evil were brought into the world. And, and one thing I didn't mention is that Adam and Eve's role as images of God, uh, they were called to work and keep the garden. And the word keep actually means guard in Hebrew. And what it means is that they were to be the security guards of the garden to protect it, to keep out anything bad. And in Genesis 3, you see the guards are the very ones who let the snake in. They're resp- they were responsible to kill that snake, not God. And instead, they let him run rampant and even join him in his destruction of all the good things God had made. And so he used to, to come before God as a, an accused person comes before the judge. They assumed they had done wrong and that they owed an account where the defendant would stand. 
And so look at, what he, look at what Lewis says. The modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. So when we think about the big question in Genesis, who is, is planning these events of evil in the world, it's, it's tempting immediately with that question to make this modern assumption to say, God is the one who needs to answer this evil, and man, us, we can be the judge of that. But Genesis flips this around and says, no, we make evil plans. Those evil plans come to fruition. We are responsible for the evil in the world. It's the, the guards that should have stopped it, and we continue to be the guards that continue to let it in. And so in our story, God is not morally responsible for selling Joseph into slavery, but his brothers are. So likewise in your life, when human plans of evil come to fruition, have you pointed the blame in the right place? Maybe a parent didn't love you as they should, like Jacob didn't love his kids, and that created so much baggage for you to carry around in your life. You've barely just started to deal with it for many years afterwards. Maybe you've been a victim of injustice like Joseph. Uh, it has made your life full of anger and vengeful thoughts, like a trapped animal that can't give, get out. Maybe it's someone in church leadership who has hurt you or let you down and in our church or in other churches, and that's made it hard for you to be a part of a church again. Maybe for many of you, it's not the evil out there that's caused so much grief in your life, but it's also the evil in here that's caused a lot of, of grief. And so who do you go to blame in those situations? Are you tempted to turn to God and get angry at him and say, why did you do this? Genesis here would remind us who made those plans for that evil? Who let that evil in? Who really is responsible for it? The guards are rightly the defendants in the dock. And the right question is not why would you allow it, God, but why would we allow it? Why would your parents allow that evil in their lives that hurts you? Why would your siblings allow that evil? Why would your spouse allow that animosity to grow and grow until they lashed out at you? Why would you allow that evil in your heart that's hurt those closest to you? The blame is on the perpetrator of the evil, and we are called to be account, to called to account to, of it to God. We are responsible. So the first answer to our question, who planned the evil events of Genesis in our lives, is if plan means be the author of and be responsible for the evil, the answer is humans plan the evil in the world. We are responsible. But as you might suspect, that's not the whole story. God is still in control. Couldn't God do something about that evil? Where is he in all this, really? So that leads us to our second point, a hidden presence in the midst of the evil. Look with me in chapter 39, uh, verses 2 through 4. Picking back up on our story with Joseph, he's now in Potiphar's house as a, as a slave. Uh, and it says, when he, when he first gets there, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and tended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put, put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph is, the Lord is with Joseph in the midst of this first low place that he finds in his life. And then again, skip down to 21 through 23. This is Joseph getting into prison. First gets into prison and then it says basically the same thing again. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love 
and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the, all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So again, Joseph is now in an even lower place in this prison, and God is with him. And what follows in the story, too, is that prisoners have these dreams, um, and God gives Joseph interpretations of these dreams that are actually premonitions of things that are going to come true in the future. And one of those prisoners gets out and becomes a cupbearer to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream that needs an interpretation, and the cupbearer remembers, oh yeah, there's a guy in prison down there, Joseph, who could actually interpret it for you. And so Pharaoh goes, and Joseph gives him the interpretation, and then uh, here's what happens in, in chapter 41, 37 through 41. Uh, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since, since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so in the midst of this human evil, God is hidden there with Joseph, doing what? Blessing him, protecting him, giving him gifts, making him influential. He's with Joseph in slavery at Potiphar's house, He's with him in the Egyptian prison before Pharaoh, and he's with Joseph even after Joseph had sinned against his brothers. Don't forget that. I think it would have been easy for Joseph to conclude multiple times in this story, especially when he first gets to Potiphar's house or when he first gets into prison, that God has left him. Look at my life. God's abandoned me. I'm alone. And the truth was, no, God never did. And why is that? Because way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promised Abraham that he would be with Joseph. God covenants with Abraham and promises to make a great nation out of his descendants. He would bless them wherever they went. He would bless the world through Abraham's family. He would be with them. He would be their God and they would be his people. So now a few generations later, a descendant of Abraham is sold into slavery and God is true to his promise. He doesn't leave Joseph and blesses him and blesses others through Joseph. Signs of evil. Haman wanted to kill all the Jews in the story of Esther. And God is with Esther and makes her queen and changes the king's mind as a result of her intercession and gives them justice. Also, Ruth and Naomi return from losing both of their husbands to to Israel. uh, And they're, they're bitter and they're sad. And God shows up in the form of Boaz and gives them abundant provision and love. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, heated up way hotter than usual, uh, the king looks in and says, did, no, did we not throw three men bound into the furnace? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. These historical stories are meant to remind Israel that when they suffer, one like the son of, of the gods is hidden there with them too. And did you know that this is not some Old Testament phenomenon, but this is true of you guys too? You who believe in Christ, the New Testament said, says, are ch- you're a child of Abraham by faith. You're one of his descendants, grafted into his family. And this is important because it means in every situation of your life, no matter how low, God has not left you. He can't leave you. He won't leave you. You are the present day Joseph. And your worst places 
when you're laying on the ground crying after a fight with your spouse, when loneliness overwhelms you, when addiction and sin get the best of you, when the world turns away from you, in that moment in the pit, one like the Son of God's next to you. And he wants to say that you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is the hidden presence in the midst of human evil. He's known as a refuge, a fortress, a high tower above every arrow. That is what he is to us. And it started with Abraham in Genesis and continues here with Joseph. A hidden presence in the midst of human evil. But at this point, you might be wondering, if he's with us, then what is he going to do about the evil itself? And this leads us to our last point, the prevailing purpose of God. So going back into Joseph's story, remember that he was brought out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh's dream was actually about agriculture over the next 14 years. There would be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And the message was if Pharaoh wanted Egypt to, Egypt to survive, he had to appoint an important person uh, to store up grain during the seven years of plenty uh, so that way they can eat off of it for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so pleased with this information that he makes Joseph the guy in charge of storing up grain. He makes him the most powerful man in all of Egypt. Besides Pharaoh, he says, without your consent, no one lifts up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And everything over the next 14 years happens as Joseph described it in the dream. And he faithfully and wisely stores up grain and saves not only Egypt, but also tons of the surrounding nations around them in the ancient world who came to Egypt to get grain during this famine. This includes Joseph's original family. His brothers make the journey and come before Joseph to get grain so that their family could survive. And in those next chapters, when his brothers come before him, they're the most emotional passages of the story. They don't recognize Joseph anymore. Uh, And Joseph tests them because last time they wanted to kill him. Uh, And so he finds out during this testing that they had changed, that they really were sad and regretted selling him into slavery, that they wanted to protect now their youngest brother, Benjamin, Um, instead of trying to get him killed. And Joseph steps away to weep multiple times during this process. And eventually he's overcome with emotion and reveals himself and tells them in chapter 45, this is uh, verses 4 through 8, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. From the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And this is the deep mystery at work here. As we said earlier, clearly humans are making evil plans, and those plans are coming to pass, and we're responsible for them. But also Joseph notices the prevailing purpose of God, a good purpose that's working underneath, that's coming true in spite of, even through the human purposes of evil. He says in chapter 50, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And this is not just a summary statement of the Joseph story. This is a summary statement of the whole book of Genesis. It's that we planned evil events 
but God simultaneously brings good to pass in a more powerful, lasting way in spite of and through that very evil. God uses our planned evil events for his plan of blessing. So much so that it's appropriate for Joseph to say, you didn't send me here, God did. For his, purpose, for his purposes. And it's mysterious, but that is the answer to the question, who plans the evil events in our lives? So Joseph blesses Egypt and the ancient world as God promised Abraham. And at the exact moment, of his brothers selling him into slavery is the moment that God's plan is coming to fruition. This mystery has a lot of implications for us. It was hard for me to decide which to talk about, but I'm going to start with talking about the implications of this in our ministry to other people. I've experienced some ministry cultures in my life that felt like if I didn't minister to this person, they were going to go to hell. I needed to save this person or they were doomed. It, it led me to be at the time driven by a lot of guilt, feeling a lot of pressure, uh, because I carried the eternal weight of someone's soul on my back, which is not strong enough to carry that. And if someone converted, it was easy to take the credit. Look what I did. I talked to that person and prayed for them and convinced God to save them. It was great. Look at them. You're welcome, guys. And this is not the picture that we get from the Joseph story in Genesis. The picture we have is, is it's God who carries the weight of his mission on his shoulders and we are generally bumbling about being faithful sometimes, being unfaithful a lot of other times. But God is so committed to his mission that he uses our faithfulness and even our unfaithfulness to achieve his own ends. You can't stop his plan. You can't thwart his plan. This is comforting on the one hand because it means when you're serving God, you can take breaks. <laughs> you can have a Sabbath day. You can go to sleep because God is working in the nighttime, when we are not. But it also uh, is convicting, on the other hand, because um, if you think, okay, well, maybe I can just rest and sit on my couch the whole rest of my life because God's going to do what he's going to do regardless of me, right? Um, actually, it means it, we're challenged because we don't get to determine the outcome of God's plan, but we do get to determine our role in it. In, this, in Esther, there's a man high up in Persia, Haman, who wanted to kill all the Jews to convince the king we need, to, we need to genocide all the Jewish people. And Esther, who is a Jew, becomes queen in the midst of this. And her uncle Mordecai tells her, hey, you need to intercede, intercede on behalf of the Jews to the king. And so she goes before, she, she considers going before the king, but she's afraid because she might die in that process because the king doesn't like people just to show up. And Mordecai responds to this. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and del deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's going to happen. God's promise is going to happen. Like we're, we're you know, Abraham's descendants. It's going to, we're going to be delivered. But you and your family will not survive. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time such as this. So Mordecai makes clear God's going to deliver the Jews no matter what. He's promised to. We can't thwart his plan. Esther doesn't have the power to determine that. But the power she does have is to determine what part will she play in it. Perhaps God has her there for a time such as this. Might she have been placed there for this very reason? And so in other words, Esther, you and I, we get to choose, will God achieve his ends in spite of us or through our faithfulness? Will we join him in redeeming the world, the most incredible job offer of all time? Or will he do it with others while you sit on your couch and relax. 
And like Esther, we will be judged based on our response to this. Joseph started poorly in this arena, lying about his brothers, but he changed and ended well. He noticed and cooperated with God's plan by forgiving his brothers in the end. What about you? What might God be calling you to join him on uh, today? What part of his mission? Did God put you somewhere specific for a time such as this? Maybe like me, it's God's call to share Christ with others. He keeps putting people around you that, you that don't know him, who live and work right next to you. And you keep thinking, no, 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 I don't want to. It's awkward to talk about these things. They won't like me. I can't do it. And the truth is, if it's in God's plan, those people are going to come to know Christ with or without you. But what you get to choose is, do you want to be there when it happens? Do you want to be near them when they do come to Christ? Or maybe it's taking time to disciple your own children. If they are God's, they belong to him, he's going to disciple them either way. The question you get to decide is, do you want to be part of that as their parent? Maybe it's serving the city of Greensboro, caring for the poor, bridging long-term racial divides, advocating for the least of these. God is going to carry forward his mission with or without you, but the question is, do you want to be a part of it today? Is today the day you finally, like Joseph, see his plan and jump into it? So who planned the evil events in Genesis and in our lives? Humans plan evil. There's a hidden presence in the midst of that evil. And the plan of God prevails always. I'm going to conclude with this. In the movie Stranger Than Fiction... A man realizes his life is being written by an author and she is writing in his death very soon. As he investigates, he, he learns the author is a person that lives in his world. And so he wants to go find her and petition for her to not have him die and to, to, to change the ending. And she does. It's a beautiful story. But let me tell you, our story is much more beautiful than that. As we continue through the Bible, we see that not only does God bring his good plan about through and even in spite of our own evil, but at one point, he, the author, chooses to step into the story himself. To petition himself on our behalf, to change the plan on our behalf, to save us from our ultimate death, which we have brought upon ourselves because of our own evil plans. And the crazy thing is, when he, when he came, we killed him. We killed him. The ultimate human evil plan on display, but again, the pattern held true. God's plan was working underneath the whole time. Death couldn't hold him. Three days later, he rises. And here's the kicker. It was through our evil, exactly our evil plans, through his death that he brings about the forgiveness, the victory over death, and our new life that we needed. This is the God we serve, and this is the story that he has written us into. We meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save the lives of many. And that author extends his hand to you. Will you join him and be a part of his mission, mission fixing the world today? Let's pray. Father, we um, are honored that you would use us um, for the good that you have planned in this world. Um, Lord, we have made a lot of evil schemes come, come to pass in our own lives. Uh, we need forgiveness from that, Lord, and you grant us that. Um, but Lord, even more, even more than just forgiveness, Lord, we need you to be making those things right again, fixing the things in us that led to those broken places. And um, Lord, we know from, from the story that, that you have a plan that can't be thwarted, that, that will come to pass. And, and Lord, we look forward to that day, and we pray right now 
Would you help us to step into that plan with you? Would you help each of us in this room to see the part that we play in that and to walk into it, Lord, not run from it? We pray, Lord, that you be with us as we do it because we need your presence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.